Good morning. I'm Christopher Preble, the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Thank you all for being here today, and thanks also to our outstanding conference staff here at Cato who do such a terrific job organizing our many events. Welcome also to those of you watching on C-SPAN and online at Cato.org. Following the September 11th terrorist attacks in October 2001, the United States initiated combat operations against al-Qaeda targets inside of Afghanistan and against the Taliban government that had harbored the terrorists there. In the ensuing 16 years, U.S. goals have changed marginally, but they typically include defeating al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups with global reach, strengthening the Afghan government and security forces to prevent the Taliban from retaking political power, and denying terrorists a safe haven. Assessments of our progress to date are mixed at best. In June, Secretary of Defense James Mattis stated, quote, we are not winning in Afghanistan right now, unquote. One could say it's not for lack of effort. Uh, estimates of what we've spent uh, range from $840 billion to over $2 trillion, plus over 2,300 U.S. troops killed and another 20,000 wounded. A recent report by the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction noted that the United States had spent $70 billion alone over 16 years to train Afghan security forces, but concluded that the effort had been hampered by corruption and inadequate oversight. And the Afghan government is struggling to defeat the Taliban. Several years ago, the government controlled about 70% of the country. Today, that figure is down to about 60%. In late August, of course, President Trump announced a modest U.S. troop surge and pledged to turn things around. In his speech, the President acknowledged that Americans were, quote, weary of war without victory, unquote. He's right. Uh, many Americans seem unwilling to walk away, but an equal number or so are reluctant to continue the war indefinitely. U.S. strategy reflecting the public's mood remains a work in progress. What better time, then, to discuss the way forward in Afghanistan? Can the United States win, as President Trump promised to do, and at what cost? If outright victory is unrealistic or too costly, can a negotiated settlement bring peace to Afghanistan? What are the risks of U.S. withdrawal? Can Americans secure our vital interests without a permanent presence in the region? Or should we be prepared for an open-ended commitment along the lines of the decades-long U.S. troop deployments in Germany, Japan, and South Korea? We have an excellent panel here today to consider these and other questions. Our first speaker is U.S. Army Major Maxwell Pappas. A 2006 graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, Major Pappas served a combat tour in Iraq from late 2007 to early 2009, followed by three combat tours in Afghanistan in 2010, 2011, and 2013. Pappas completed Army Ranger training in 2007 and was then assigned to the 25th Infantry Division during the Iraq surge. He went to Zabul province in Afghanistan as a member of a provincial reconstruction team in 2010 returned to the States to complete additional training at Fort Benning, Georgia, and was then assigned to the 10th Mountain Division, where he commanded troops in the 1st Squadron, 89th Cavalry Regiment in Kandahar Province and Paktika Province in Afghanistan. Major Pappas earned a master's degree in security studies from Georgetown University in 2016, and he graduated from the Army's Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, earlier this year. 
He's currently the executive officer of the 4th Battalion, 3rd Infantry Regiment, also known as the Old Guard at Arlington Cemetery. Following Major Pappas's remarks, we'll hear from our three other distinguished panelists. Michael O'Hanlon is a senior fellow in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution. He's also director of research for the foreign policy program at Brookings and an adjunct professor at Columbia, Princeton, and Syracuse universities and the University of Denver. He's a member of the International Institute for Strategic Studies and was a member of the external advisory board to the Central Intelligence Agency from 2011 to 2012. Mike is the author of many books, including The Future of Land Warfare, published in 2015, Healing the Wounded Giant, Maintaining Military Preeminence While Cutting the Defense Budget, 2013, and with Hasina Shirjan, Toughing It Out in Afghanistan, published in 2010. He's also written three Marshall Papers, a new monograph series from Brookings Foreign Policy Program. I'd like to put in a special plug for Beyond NATO, a new security architecture for Eastern Europe, which was published earlier this year. Dr. O'Hanlon has published several hundred op-eds in all of the major newspapers, and since, 2000, since September 11, 2001, has appeared on television or radio more than 3,000 times. So if he looks familiar to you, he should. Mike earned a PhD in, PhD, uh, in public and international affairs from Princeton. Our second speaker today is Stephen Biddle, Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at my alma mater, George Washington University. He's published widely, writing mostly about how modern social science can inform defense policy. His book, Military Power, Explaining Victory and Defeat in Modern Battle, published by Princeton in 2004, won four prizes, including Harvard's Huntington Prize and the Council on Foreign Relations Arthur Ross Award Silver Medal. He has also published articles in all of the leading journals, including International Security, Foreign Affairs, Survival, and the Journal of Strategic Studies, and shorter articles in New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and many others. Professor Biddle has testified many times before Congress, including on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2007, he served on General David Petraeus's Joint Strategic Assessment Team in Baghdad, on General Stanley McChrystal's initial strategic assessment team in Kabul in 2009, and as a senior advisor to General Petraeus's Central Command Assessment Team in Washington in 2008 and 2009. He was awarded the U.S. Army Superior Civilian Service Medal in 2003 and 2006, and was presented with the U.S. Army Commander's Award for Public Service in Baghdad in 2007. Steve holds a PhD from Harvard. And our final speaker today is my colleague, Eric Gopner, a visiting fellow, research fellow in Cato's Defense and Foreign Policy Studies Department. Retired colonel in the US Air Force, his assignments included unit commands in Afghanistan, Iraq, and the Pacific region. His research interests include national security, civil war, terrorism, and trauma. He has published in the Washington Post, Parameters, Newsweek, and the National Interest, among other outlets. Eric is a doctoral candidate at George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government. He received MAs from George Washington University and the Air Command and Staff College. He is the co-author with Trevor Thrall of two Cato papers, including Step Back, Lessons for U.S. Foreign Policy from the Failed War on Terror, which is available in hard copy for those of you here in attendance and online for those of you watching from afar. I should also note that we've made available in the FOIA recent articles on Afghanistan by Mike O'Hanlon and Steve Biddle. So Eric, who has organized this event and deserves all of the credit, would like to begin by telling a firsthand story about Major Pappas's exploits in Afghanistan, and then Major Pappas will take it from there. Thank you. Good morning to all. So Major Pappas and I served together in Afghanistan. We're going to go back to a little war story. 
So go back in time, 2010, you're in southern Afghanistan. For those fans of Deliverance, imagine the banjos playing off in the distance. And it's about 8.30 at night, long duty days behind us, and we're playing the world's best video game for a combat setting, which is Call of Duty, correct. <laughs> Major Pappas is winning. It's him, me, and two other colleagues. And in comes the senior NCO from our operations center. And he announces that they've detected three insurgents 1,200 meters outside of our base implanting an IED, putting a bomb in the road. And uh, we go through the checklist of different things we could do, and none of them make any sense because they're not going to get there in time, may cause uh, civilian casualties for villagers that live nearby, or otherwise uh, our presence would be announced too early and they would be gone. So Max comes up with what would be a completely tactically unsound plan if it was anybody except for Max. And his plan is this. We know we have three insurgents that we've identified. So I'm going to take a team of myself and three guys. So we're going to go out with four against an enemy force that we know has at least three. And we assume, of course, that there's going to be other insurgents out there kind of screening their position for them. But because Max is Max, I readily agree and I say, that sounds great. Why don't you guys go and do that? So it's now about 8.45 at night. It's pitch black, part of summer. Matt is get, Max is going to don his 65 pounds of uh, battle rattle. So 65 pounds of gear is now on him and his three teammates. Night vision goggles are on. And if you haven't ever worn night vision goggles, you have zero depth perception. And so Max is now going to traverse more than a mile because you can't go in a straight line towards the enemy. That would be unsound. He's going to go up and down uh, a riverbed. And about two-thirds of the way, because I'm, I should tell you, I'm where old men go in combat, which is the operations center. So I'm watching all this on our thermal imaging device. And I watch Max cruising along, cruising along. And we're about two-thirds of the way to making contact with the enemy force. And I see Max leave two of his teammates. So now you understand it's Max and one man going against three known insurgents. And I'm not going to bother asking him any questions because I figure his stress level is probably pretty high. He's running with 65 pounds of gear, dead of night, and he knows he's about to have a lethal encounter with three other human beings. Shortly thereafter, obviously the stillness of the Zabal summer night erupts. When the night concludes, Max and his team have wounded one insurgent. They've detained a second insurgent. Third one got away to fight another day. We've safely detonated the IED, so no harm will come to Afghans or American forces. And there's no casualties whatsoever uh, to US forces that night. So uh, may I introduce the audacious, and you're soon to find out intelligent, Maxwell Pappas, Major, U.S. Army. Thanks a lot for the uh, introduction. Um, I hope I can absolutely live up to that, uh, to that hype. Um, so I'm here, first of all, uh, as a citizen here to discuss some of my experiences, 18 months total uh, in Afghanistan, in order to share kind of a tactical perspective, uh, highlight some of the challenges that uh, are in place actually implementing the policies that we discuss in places like this. Uh, when, when it gets down to the, to the person on the ground, uh, it's not necessarily as clean and, and easy to do as we like to think it is sometimes at the higher levels. Uh, so what, first of all, before uh, we begin, what, anything I discuss here doesn't represent any sort of official uh, line from the U.S. government. Doesn't, uh, it's not the official views of the Army, the Department of Defense. Um, so uh, I just wanted to start off with, with just that. Um, so what I would say is um, anybody who's pretty well versed in uh, foreign policy right now, knows about the wars in Afghanistan, understands that FM 3-24, counterinsurgency, uh, published in 2006 uh, by General Petraeus, uh, served as a guide for you know, the surge in Iraq, which in 2010 time, time frame we thought was uh, going fairly well, um, and also uh, serves as kind of the 
our guidelines for strategy in Afghanistan. So it focuses on separating insurgents from the populace, separates on, or on training host nations, security forces, addressing grievances, usually through improvement of governments, governance, and transitioning that authority back to locals. So what I'm going to talk about just a little bit, my experience is 2010, 11, and uh, 13, uh, is mostly on the tactical side, um, support to governance, improving that governance thing, uh, while I was deployed on the provincial reconstruction team to Zabul province, and then uh, security force assistance when I was deployed to Paktika province as a, a company commander two years later. So uh, perspective, this is uh, in May of 2010. I'm sitting, uh, going to a small village, Pasani. Uh, maybe 500 to 1,000 people live in Pasani. Uh, it's about four or five miles out of the provincial or the district capital, and uh, we were just ambushed. And I'm outside trying to direct fire, direct fire, trying to convince Afghans that they want to shoot in this direction, as opposed to that direction, uh, in order to try to make sure that we are able to survive the day. And uh, I see my, my counterpart at the time, a person I was assigned to, uh, Abdul Qayyum. He was 50 years old. He had fought the Russians, allegedly. And then he had, he had continued to survive in Afghanistan, which on its own is an, is an accomplishment to the ripe old age of 50. And so he was the district, district leader, or sorry, the uh, district chief for Shajoy province, or Shajoy district in Zabul province. Uh, as you can see, it gets very complicated very quickly. <laughs> um, but he comes over to me while we're getting shot at, and he looks at me and he yells at me something in Pashtun. I have no idea what he does, what he says, because I don't speak Pashtun, obviously. Um, so I look to my interpreter and he comes up and he says it again to him. And he looks at me, he laughs and he thinks it's funny. So he looks at me and he goes, sir, he says he, he doesn't think that we're welcome here. I said, what? <laughs> that is the story of most of my time in Afghanistan. So <laughs> what we were trying to accomplish right there is the implementation of this policy, the support to governments, governance. As we, as we began to deploy in February of that year into Afghanistan uh, on this provincial reconstruction team, what we determined was probably the, the place that we could uh, we could make the most money was in terms of connecting the lowest part of the government of Afghanistan at the district level to those cultural and uh, tribal leaders that existed uh, all throughout Afghanistan, had existed as the way that it had been governed for probably millennia. Um, so as part of that connection thing, we, we talked a little bit, a lot about touch time, touch points, uh, making sure that when we interacted with, with Afghans, or when as advisors we interacted with our Afghan counterparts, we maximized that time, built that personal relationship, which made our opinion matter, which gave us additional chances to kind of impart any sort of uh, information that we had onto these people so that we could be successful in Afghanistan. Um, the other part of that was improving the touch time between that lowest level of the government and the senior, those tribal leaders. So there I was in Pasani, just outside of uh, Sha Joy, attempting to bring the district chief, the embodiment of, all, of the government of Afghanistan, for all intents and purposes, to most of the people in his district, trying to bring him to the village so that we could have a shura, uh, which is a collection of elders there to discuss. Um, and try to determine some of the grievances that these people had and in order to be able to deal with, deal with those problems. Uh, perspective, uh, Colonel Governor referred to the banjos playing in the background when he entered Zabul. Zabul, not to offend anybody from Alabama, but is the Alabama of Afghanistan. So it gets you in a perspective that it's a very economically depressed area, um, very socially conservative, by Afghan standards, very socially conservative uh, group. So they're, they're very not uninterested when outsiders come into their area. So uh, when we bring the government of Afghanistan, which is seen as an outsider in a lot of ways, into these places, of course there's going to be some resistance. 
So uh, that day, we fight through that ambush, uh, just a few people just trying to harass us. We get to the village, and inside the village, we say, all right, this is the Shura. Well, the district chief, the person that is being empowered as the leader of Afghan, or as the leader of, of that district, um, nobody shows up to his Shura. Well, that's not okay. That, that doesn't really give you a lot of confidence in the ability of the government to govern. So we go out around and we round up all the, all the houses, knocking on doors. The Afghan police are going out and just talking to people, not, not mean like in this case, but bringing them in in order to have the shirt. And they all sit there and they're quiet for a while. And so Kayum, being who Kayum was, uh, an illiterate 45-year-old Afghan man who understood not necessarily bureaucracy and not necessarily governance, but he understood how to interact with people. He understood how to build that personal relationship. He taunts them, says, hey, your ambush? That didn't stop me. I'm here. The government of Afghanistan is here. Um, and that broke the ice, because that's how that works there. Uh, and these individuals, they, they began to talk to him in a little bit. It wasn't super successful. And so you know, after about a, 30 or 40 minutes of, uh, of that discussion, we decided to break down. So that was the first time Kayum had been able to make it to that village in his tenure as a district chief. So we break down and we leave. We get ambushed again, because that's, again, how that works. So we get back to the district center, and we say, all right, in a week, we're going to go back. Kaim says, why? We just were there. Touch points. It's the idea of actually integrating ourselves into there. Because we didn't have money. We didn't have a whole lot of money in order to be able to throw at them. If we did, what would we build? An Afghan who's survived in the desert for that long in these places. They, they don't need anything. They needed faith in their government. So if their primary concern, which is what they discussed during that shura, was, hey, you guys aren't ever here. The government's not here. So why should we trust the government? Why should we do this? Well, we needed to demonstrate a little bit of consistency. So in a week, we went back. And guess what happened when we came in there? We got ambushed. It didn't take as long this time, because we knew where it was going to happen this time, at least. So we were able to build a little bit of a pattern. And, but we go in there, and this time, people showed up to the meeting. So they knew we were going to be there. They knew that we, that wasn't going to scare Kayum away. And he was able to actually demonstrate no, the government's here, the government's coming back, and the government's going to be there to stay. So that's the absolute baseline piece of what we were attempting to, uh, attempting to establish during that period of time. So as a perspective, that's not, solving grievance, or that's not solving problems. That's just giving people a little bit of faith that somebody's there. Um, and that was, that was one of the major challenges that we had in terms of supporting governance you know, during that period. So I'm going to talk... A couple years later, so in 2013, I go back to Afghanistan, and some things have changed. Some things haven't necessarily changed. Uh, but the idea of creating sustainable solutions, um, empowering the local government to be able to increase that connection hasn't really gone away, uh, which is heartening to see. So in 2013, I redeploy as part of 10th Mountain Division, as we were talking about. Um, I was part of a security, assistant, security force assistance brigade. So uh, we talk about those four pillars at the beginning. Uh, uh, going through a separating insurgent from the uh, populist training host nation security forces, addressing grievances, and then transitioning authority. Security Force Assistance Brigade was the idea that we could, hey, we could have uh, specially tailored U.S. military organizations that are supposed to integrate uh, with the Afghan army and with the Afghan police in order to, uh, in order to improve their capability. Okay. 
So we deploy and we're spread out. We have to reduce the, because of the boots on the ground restrictions, we had to re reduce the size of the US forces. So we had, uh, we were taking risk. We had security force teams, which were senior officers, senior NCOs, uh, that had to develop a personal relationship with the Afghans that they're, uh, they were working with. Um, and, and they had to make sure, because that, that was their security. There's only you know, 10 or so at any given time that are walking into Kandaks of five, 600, uh, 100 Afghan soldiers. And so you have to rely on that personal relationship that you develop. And that was one of the things that a lot of them did. Uh, so one of the challenges I would talk about is happened on uh, June 8th of 2013 when I got a phone call from my squadron commander. He said, hey, I need you to pull all your teams back uh, from the other side of the wire. We were in a base that was surrounded by Afghans. So I had to pull my teammates back. Um, he says, hey, uh, Colonel Clark and Major Leonard, they were just shot. Uh, it was a green on blue incident, which uh, if you remember the news from the 2013 era, that was a very significant one. However, this is halfway through a deployment. This is the first one we had because we thought we had, uh, had kind of nicked that one. Uh, we had built that relationship. We had tried to build that trust. But as it came down, it was a cultural difference. Uh, in the U.S. Army, if you screw up, you're told, hey, you screwed up, and everybody kind of moves on. Uh, in the Afghan Army, that's a challenge to authority, and uh, Colonel Clark had told a recon company commander that he didn't do his job properly. And so he was offended, he was ashamed, and his response to that was to come back and it was to, to kill two senior US officers in our brigade. Now, if your entire mission is to go there and be a security force assistance brigade, and part of that is building that trust, how difficult do you think it is to regain that trust on the US side? How difficult is it to convince yourself, hey, I need to go back out there and I need to trust these people when um, when individuals in your element are, are, are being killed by the people that you're there to help. So it's difficult. That's one of those challenges. So when we say security force assistance, we say, hey, we're going to advise, we're going to assist, we're going to implement change. Our, our presence itself isn't necessarily enough. It's our presence and then building those relationships and having the faith, uh, and in some cases, just the courage to, all right, I'll take off my body armor so that I can interact with you as person to person. Um, and that's, that's really tough sometimes. Um, so I'm going to run out of time if I continue going on about war stories. Uh, so but what, I, what I would like to say, just to echo some of the points I already made, uh, the war in Afghanistan, it's been a struggle. But it's not a struggle because of any sort of lack of effort or skill or resourcing. It's a struggle because counterinsurgency operations are difficult. Um, it's very complex. I, I liken it to trying to build a house while you're getting shot at. If I'm getting shot at, it's not as big a deal. But I have the carpenter who knows how to build the house. If he's getting shot at, it's going to really disrupt his job. And so as a constant problem is the technical experts that you need to get to the locations uh, in order to do the really technical, di difficult jobs, they're not, they're not always available. <laughs> so what you end up having, like with myself and Kayum, is a 26-year-old infantry captain who's advising him on how to run a district. Uh, it's not necessarily in what we call the wheelhouse. Uh, so I don't necessarily know all the ins and outs of the, of the bureaucracy. Same as, you know, if I was responsible for going through and building a house, I'm going to build a house that's going to look like a house. It won't necessarily have all the parts inside. The plumbing might not be right. The electricity might not be right. And that's, unfortunately, what we see a lot of the times is uh, we have people that are building a house in Afghanistan. They're helping support this governance, help support uh, build this country back up from the shambles it's been in. And, um, well, well, 
sometimes all the bureaucracy doesn't work right because we don't necessarily have the ability to get the State Department or those, those technical experts on how the government works into the places in order to you know, make sure our fiscal policy is good or make sure something else is working properly. It's, it's difficult. Um, and then when you add on the, the social, you add on the um, cultural differences and the language difficulties, and if you don't have an interpreter, for instance, who's very good, then you could spend months having conversations with somebody where nobody knows what you're saying. So what I would like to say is uh, it, <laughs> the US Army and the military in itself isn't always the best tool for producing or for you know, rebuilding a nation. But oftentimes, it's the only one that we have. Um, and so we owe it to our, ourselves and to the US people, to the people who are actually sacrificing, like Colonel, Ta or Colonel Clark. Um, Colonel Leonard or two of my soldiers, Sergeant, Sergeant Fike and Sergeant Hoover, who are going to give their life trying to rebuild, trying to partner with the Afghan soldiers. Um, we, we owe it to them to make sure that we get it as close to right as we possibly can. Uh, and so I'm hoping that some of my discussions, some of the discussions in panels such as this actually help, help improve that and improve the quality of our decisions that we're making so that uh, those war stories usually have happy endings uh, rather than somewhat sad ones. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Major, those were moving remarks and very informative. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Chris, and all of you for the opportunity to be here. It's a privilege to be part of this important discussion today. Uh, one quick note on baseball. Uh, today's an important day in Washington baseball. I just want to be the first to say, I'm sure I'm not the first, that even if the Nats don't have a good postseason, I want to applaud them on a great season. Uh, and it's been a wonderful baseball season. I also want to ask our Cubs fans, how greedy can you be? Two world championships you're after now in 107 years isn't one enough, uh, and it just seems to me I want to make a plea that they, maybe they make a little uh, faux pas tonight. But, but I'm going to now segue from that into Afghanistan by saying, on Afghanistan, I am not greedy. I am not looking for some stellar outcome. To me, even though I support the mission and support President Trump's decision to reinforce it, and I'm sure I'm not necessarily in the majority on this panel in that view, uh, but we'll hear from others uh, and, of course, from you in the course of the conversation. Uh, I, I do support that decision, but I don't see it as a pathway towards a resounding victory. I think the stakes in Afghanistan are, frankly, more modest, and they boil back down to making sure we're not attacked again uh, by a plot that's largely hatched or planned or organized on Afghan or South Asian territory, uh, as we were on 9-11. And another way to put the same sort of idea is that I hope that our presence in Afghanistan, which may have to last, I'm afraid, for many more years, can help be our sort of eastern flank in a broader region-wide struggle against violent extremism, which I expect to be a generation-long struggle. And had the privilege of writing uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this June with David Petraeus making that same argument, that this is indeed a generation-long struggle against extremism, and we need some strongholds uh, and some bastions, in a sense, uh, to wage that successfully, and the Afghan presence is the most logical place in South Asia. So I actually see in some ways the presence in South Asia not as a nation-building effort at this point, and not simply bailing out a sinking ship of the Afghan state, but actually a strategic uh, asset for the United States. Because this, if you, if you essentially assume the existence of this ongoing violent extremist threat throughout the broader Middle East, you're going to need assets to deal with that. You're going to need some locations 
from which you can handle that threat. Now, we'll come back to the issue of negotiations later. If the only thing standing in the way of a truly viable peace deal with the Taliban was an American willingness to leave South Asia, I would probably be willing to consider that and support that. But at the moment, I actually would like to slightly turn the logic away from viewing this as a nation-building enterprise and also argue that this is creation of an American strategic asset in a geographically important part of the broader Central Command theater. So my first point is just to underscore how I see the stakes and the, and the broader strategic purpose here. I want to do four more things briefly uh, before turning over to Steve Biddle uh, and Scott and then uh, a discussion here and with all of you. I want to talk about what are realistic goals for President Trump's new strategy that he's just articulated that's been further fleshed out by recent congressional testimony by Secretary Mattis and General Dunford and other statements from other parts of the US government. So what are realistic goals for the foreseeable future? What are the main concepts, the main things we're doing with these additional forces and other capabilities uh, that hopefully can help us achieve realistic goals? How long will it take? And then what's the role for negotiations? So again, beyond the question of strategic stakes that I've already touched on, what are more realistic operational goals? What are the main concepts for what we're doing with these added re resources on the ground? What are the timelines we have to think about for this kind of a strategy to have any chance? And then finally, what, if any, role could we aspire to for negotiations with the Taliban and the Afghan government? In terms of realistic goals, and Chris, in his very good introduction, uh, alluded to the kinds of things I want to talk about here. He mentioned that by US intelligence estimates, as repeated by the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, which does these reports every few months that you can find on the web if you want to read more, that there's an estimate now that the Afghan government only controls about 60% of the country. I think to be more precise, uh, that's actually the right broad number, and none of these estimates are exact anyway, but the report itself says that 57% of the territory and 62% of the population are essentially under government control. Another 10% or so is under Taliban control, and the remaining 30% or so is contested. And that is a deterioration over the last half decade, and especially over the last two to three years from an earlier figure of the government having maybe 70 to 72% estimated control of the territory and population. So what I would like to see as a realistic, attainable goal that I think President Trump could possibly achieve in his first term is to reverse the momentum or the direction by which those numbers are changing. So if we've gone from roughly 70% government control to 60%, I'd like to see us aspire to 65 to 70% again under government control by the end of 2020. General John Allen and I wrote about that more recently after uh, President Trump gave his summertime speech on Afghanistan policy, endorsing that kind of a standard as one that we thought was attainable. That may sound sort of like splitting hairs, you know, a, a different shade of a mediocre stalemate. And you, we can certainly have that debate. I'm sure some people here will want to have that debate today, and we should, as I say. However, a lot of what's been happening in Afghanistan in the last two to three years is a function of psychology and perceived momentum. The Taliban think they're winning, which, by the way, is part of why I'm not very hopeful about a near-term negotiation option. I don't think they're going to negotiate for anything less than what's essentially a surrender by President Ghani and, and, uh, and Dr. Abdullah and the government of Afghanistan today. So I think we have to change that perception if we have a hope for a realistic negotiation. 
Also, the Pakistani intelligence services, which are continuing to aid and abet, or at least condone, the Taliban, as I think uh, the Pentagon officials I mentioned earlier have already testified to yet again this week in Washington. Uh, if we're going to try to change the calculus of the Pakistani intelligence, which is a daunting proposition, we have to show that de defeat of Ghani and Abdullah and the Afghan government of today is not inevitable, that there is actually a realistic chance that the Taliban can be held off, even as NATO has now downsized dramatically since the peak of forces back in the Petraeus, McChrystal, Allen period when we got up to nearly 100, or about 100,000 US troops and nearly 150,000 total NATO and NATO-led troops. Now we're down to a number that's only about 10% of that figure somewhere around 15,000 total. We're probably headed up to 20,000, 22,000 with the current Trump strategy. So we're still gonna be dramatically smaller, but we are going to, I think, have enough capability for a decent chance of reversing this momentum. So to me, that's the, that's the goal that we should be hoping for. And I think there would be important psychological effects on the Taliban, on the Pakistani intelligence forces and services that support the Taliban, and certainly on Afghans, many of whom have been leaving the country after a lot of the diaspora came back after 9-11. It's been gradually trickling out in this period of declining morale uh, because there has been this sense of gradual slippage, that the country is gradually being lost. And I think if that could be changed, you could reverse the flow also of the young Afghans, many of whom I've met and admire greatly, who are trying to build a new country. And they have a lot of work ahead of them uh, for all the reasons that Max got at. But I think they have a chance, as long as they believe in the mission and they stay uh, to complete it. And when I say mission here, I'm talking obviously much more broadly than a military mission. So those are, to me, the realistic goals. I can't prove they will be achieved by President Trump's new strategy. I do think it's important to caution, even as an advocate and supporter of that strategy, that the President's talk of victory is, to my mind, unrealistic and probably not even productive because it raises expectations too high. But I have a lower set of standards that I think may be attainable and that would be important if we could achieve them. Okay, so what are we gonna do with these extra forces? First, let me clarify the numbers a little bit further because I know there are a lot of numbers dancing around out there. Uh, and those of us who are in the unclassified world don't necessarily know the exact numbers anyway. That's partly deliberate. Uh, Secretary Mattis has been very clear, as has President Trump. They don't believe in giving complete information to the American public because by necessity you're also giving it to the enemy when you do that in a public debate. However, we do know a fair amount about the current troop configurations and now what will happen with the reinforcements. So up until President Trump's speech this summer, we had about 8,400 Americans in Afghanistan in uniform according to the official numbers. We've gradually learned uh, over the years that there have been probably three to 4,000 additional temporary forces on any given deployment, any given time. So the US number has really been probably around 12,000 in the last year or two. Even though the official number, which is really the people who were based there for you know, seven to 12 months, has been 8,400. So we, we've been at about 12,000 US and another 5,000 NATO and, uh, and NATO partner countries. So roughly in the range of 17 or 18,000 total foreign forces in Afghanistan. That number is now apparently growing by 3,000 to 5,000. So we're gonna be somewhere between probably 20,000 and 24,000 total foreign troops 
as these reinforcements arrive in country. That's still only one-sixth to one-seventh the number we had at peak back when Steve had helped with the strategic review and the immediate aftermath of that period uh, when I had the opportunity and privilege to travel a number of times with him and others to Afghanistan myself. And in that period of time, it was just amazing to see what people like Max were doing on the ground. Uh, and you know, uh, it, it, you also had to acknowledge, even as a supporter of the mission, that uh, these guys often deserved better than they were getting uh, from their Afghan partners, from their American political system, what have you. Uh, but I still thought that uh, they, they accomplished a fair amount. And there is, in many ways now, the basis for at least some modest progress towards the standards I outlined before. You might say, however, if you're a skeptic, and I suspect there are a few here, why can we get done with 20,000 foreign troops what we couldn't get done with 150,000? Very fair question. Well, what are those troops going to do? I think what they're going to do primarily is to get out in the field as combat advisors and mentors to Afghan units that are in contact with the enemy. This does raise the risks for American forces who have largely been confined to headquarters and training facilities in the last couple of years. There's now going to be a larger number out in the field, sort of the way we've been operating in Iraq in the fight against ISIS the last three years. So there'll be more of that. And many of these units in the Afghan army and police uh, have very, very young leadership that hasn't really gotten that strong yet because a lot of their leadership was politicized in the Karzai period in particular. I think it's gradually reforming and improving. But we sort of skipped over a step of being out there in the field mentoring with them when President Obama accelerated the drawdown uh, in decisions he made in 2013, 14, 15. So we haven't really done this phase of being out in the field mentoring. And I think that can make a substantial difference. Also, we haven't had free use of American air power. It's been very restricted to cases where American forces were under direct threat or where we saw al-Qaeda or ISIS targets. And now Secretary Mattis, President Trump, General Nicholson on command in Afghanistan are going to allow NATO air power to be used more routinely in fights against the Taliban, even to support Afghan army units, who are the ones, of course, leading that fight today. Uh, so air power and mentoring are the main things we'll be doing differently than we have been, a more expansive use of air power. Let me quickly finish up. I've already touched on the timelines issue and the negotiations issue, so I can just summarize by saying the following. I think this will be an indefinite mission, not necessarily at the level of 20 to 24,000 foreign troops, but I think I would be less than fully honest with you as a person who supports this operation and who's tried to think through some of its longer-term dimensions if I didn't acknowledge that it could be a decade or more and I use the expression, a generation-long struggle against extremism earlier. So I'm not promising that if we surge or mini-surge for two years, we can come home in 2022. I have no such promise, and you shouldn't support this kind of a strategy, in my opinion, if you have that as a, a requirement, that we would be able to come home, let's say, within five years. I, I don't think a complete departure is going to be in the cards in that time frame. I hope we can return to the path of downsizing within that time frame. But that's the most I would aspire to. Now, there are variables. What does Pakistan do in terms of sanctuary for the uh, Taliban? Uh, what role do we see with ISIS and al-Qaeda? And to what extent does a broader extremist threat percolate in that region? So there are a number of things we can't quite sketch out. And of course, Afghan politics, uh, whether there's a good election there for the parliament next year, a good election for the presidency in 2019, whether the very gradual process of fighting corruption that I think President Ghani has made some progress in conducting and which SIGAR notes has actually borne some fruit 
I was struck that SIGAR is pretty good at rotting out and, and vetting out uh, corruption when they see it. They acknowledged that some of the procurement reform strategies the Afghan government's used under President Ghani have made substantial headway in their recent report from last winter. So if we can see that kind of progress continue, maybe there's hope for a quicker drawdown. But finally, and to conclude, in terms of those who are hoping for a negotiated outcome with the Taliban, and Steve may or may not speak to this, I look forward to his thoughts, I am, I am a full supporter of that as long as it's not a surrender. And right now, I fear that the only kind of deal that might be doable with a group that thinks it's winning is effectively a surrender. Now, if it becomes a power-sharing arrangement, if it becomes giving them certain governorships in the Southeast uh, that are monitored and, and you know, supervised, but otherwise under their control, I'm open to that kind of framework for discussion. I just fear that right now we have to reverse that battlefield momentum before we can be there and have a realistic chance. And I hope President's, President Trump's strategy might get us to that place of reversing momentum. Thank you. Well, Mike has uh, kindly handed to me the negotiation portfolio because that's the easy part of uh, this issue area. Um, and I'm happy to talk about negotiation, but it's important, I think, to set it into a little bit of context first. I mean, after 16 years of this conflict, our range of plausible outcomes is now a lot narrower than it was in 2001. And the range of plausible US options is a lot narrower than it was. We're not sending 100,000 troops back to Afghanistan. And I suspect the panel will agree, we're not going to get anything that would conventionally look like military victory in Afghanistan, regardless of what policy choice we adopt. When the president talks about victory, I suspect either he isn't thinking very hard about what that means, uh, probably not a fan of the 19th century Prussian military philosopher Karl von Clausewitz, who talked about defining victory and defeat in terms of political objectives rather than destroying the enemy. We're not going to destroy the enemy. Uh, I think the range of plausible outcomes for this campaign at this point is somewhere between the collapse of the Afghan government and a return to 1990s atomized civil warfare and a compromised negotiated settlement that does not look like a Taliban surrender instrument either, that involves us giving something and them giving something. That, that's where the range of plausible outcomes lie at the moment and the range of initiatives that the United States could plausibly adopt to pursue getting closer to the likelihood of a negotiated settlement that involves some sort of compromise rather than simply sacrifice of all the interests that are engaged amounts to somewhere between complete withdrawal, which is a plausible choice for the United States, and something that looks like 24,000 troops on the ground to advise, airstrikes, and an expenditure from the U.S. Treasury of something on the order of you know, 15 to $30 billion a year or so to support that effort for as long as it takes to get a negotiated settlement that we can live with, which is not going to happen in six months or a year or even two. A negotiation this complicated is going to take quite a while to unfold. Now, you could reasonably ask, are any of those outcomes worth that scale of expenditure to obtain? And I think, I suspect also the panel probably agrees that the scale of US interests engaged in the conflict uh, is somewhere in the real but limited neighborhood. The stakes that the United States faces in Afghanistan today 
involves some combination of the use of Afghan territory as a base for terrorists to attack us, as Mike pointed out. That is a real problem, but it is not a problem that's unique to Afghanistan. There are lots of pieces of real estate around the world where Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State or Jabhat al-Nusra or any of dozens of other violent militant groups at Minas Hill aren't now, but might be in the future. If the way we're going to deal with this generation-long problem of how do we cope with violent extremism is we're going to spend $30 billion a year and send 24,000 soldiers everywhere they might be in the future but aren't now, we're going to run out of dollars and soldiers a long time before violent extremists run out of real estate. Um, I tend to suspect that the more compelling American stake in Afghanistan is regional stability, which is code language for whether Pakistan collapses or not. Uh, Pakistan is right across a very porous international border in the form of the Duran Line from Afghanistan. The Pashtun ethnic group that's primarily associated with the Taliban insurgency is a cross-border population that has more members on the Pakistani side than the Afghan side. And Pakistan is engaged in an insurgency and a counterinsurgency war of its own that by some metrics isn't going terribly well for them. If the Pakistanis lose their war, then a nuclear weapons state with a large and growing nuclear arsenal and dozens of violent extremist groups that don't like Islamabad and don't like Washington could then plausibly be in a setting in which the military and the intelligence services break up if the state loses its war and collapses. And that creates some danger that an actual usable nuclear weapon could fall in the hands of terrorists that might use them against ourselves or our allies. Um, that's a real threat to US national interests. And collapse on the Afghan side of the Durand line could create base camps in Afghanistan by which militants in Pakistan might pursue an agenda that is potentially quite dangerous to the United States. Although that's a real problem for us, note that that would require a whole series of uncertain events breaking badly for us in sequence. The US counterinsurgency campaign in Afghanistan would have to fail. The Afghan government would have to fall. Pakistani insurgents would have to set up base camps. That would have to tip the Pakistani insurgency over the brink. The Pakistan government and intelligence services break up. They lose control of their nuclear arsenal and one gets used. That's not an impossible sequence of events. The compound probability is probably less than 50% and maybe a lot less than 50%. If it happened, it would be a, a disaster for US interests of historic magnitude but it's a low probability chain of events. What then are we willing to invest in Afghanistan to have some marginal influence, not a guarantee of success if we succeed in Afghanistan, Pakistan might lose its war anyway, to have some marginal influence in reducing the likelihood of this chain of bad events going badly. And that's a judgment call that reasonable people can make differently. In the past, I've been supportive of the war because I think Low probability events, if they're ugly enough, and this one is way up there in the ugly scale, uh, are worth some degree of investment in. 
reasonable people can make that judgment call differently depending on your risk tolerance, which as an analyst, I can't tell you what your risk tolerance should be. Some of you are probably invested in the stock market. Some of you may be Washington Nats fans. So there are all sorts of variations from person to person in risk tolerance. What I can tell you is I think on the merits, it's a relatively close call. If you decide that you're willing to incur that risk, uh, or you're willing to, to incur that cost to reduce that risk, what is the sensible way to reduce the risk the most for the money that we spend? Part of the plausible policy agenda open to us at the moment is reinforcements to the advisory effort and a change in the rules of engagement for the use of air power. Um, especially the latter could be quite helpful. The other important avenue that is open to us that is actually not terribly expensive in financial terms is to actually get serious about the negotiating process. We are not going to defeat the Taliban, and the advisory effort is not going to enable the Afghan government to defeat the Taliban. What's some combination of the advisory effort, American airstrikes, American intelligence assistance, American equipment, other initiatives that we may pursue in Afghanistan, is plausibly able to do is to maintain a stalemate. We could change the slope of the curve on territorial control, you know, make it a bit more shallow, maybe even make it a little bit positive. We're not going to kick the Taliban out of the country. Uh, we probably are not going to see a Taliban takeover even if we don't reinforce. The Taliban have shown some but very limited ability to penetrate urban areas. My guess is either way, what we're talking about is something that most people would describe as a, as a stalemate, and the issue is what variation on stalemate do we want as a function of how we plan our military posture. I tend to be pessimistic on what security assistance can do. I don't think the central barrier to the performance of the Afghan national uh, security forces at the moment is how much training their junior officers have. I think the primary barrier to the performance of the Afghan national security forces are profound structural issues having to do with the institutionalization of the Afghan state and the consequences of that for military performance. More on that in just a moment. Where I think our policy probably has the most marginal influence on outcomes is with respect to the way we handle the problem of negotiation. Any outcome better than Afghan state collapse and a return to 1990s style civil warfare amounts to a negotiated settlement. What the military campaign is doing between now and whenever that happens or doesn't happen is we're just changing at the margin the terms of the settlement that will result. So settlement is the only alternative to outright defeat, failure, and you know, rolling the dice and getting a chance to run the social science experiment and see what happens to Pakistan if the Afghan government actually collapses. That in turn means that if we're going to spend money and if we're going to send troops and if we're going to risk American lives in the advisory campaign, we have to be serious about the settlement prospect involved because that's the only point of doing this. And yet, we have no Assistant Secretary of State for South Asian Affairs. There's an acting official in that job. We did away with the office of the Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, whose job description essentially was to act as czar for development of a negotiating strategy. The conduct of the campaign in Afghanistan, as far as I can tell, and this goes all the way back 
you know, to you know, when Mike and I were, were traveling there, and, and back to my time on General McChrystal's assessment team, has never been conceived of as the military arm of a combined politico-military negotiating strategy. What we have had, and I think unfortunately continue to have, is a campaign plan that looks like let's create the best trajectory we can for government control over time. And at some unspecified point in the some unspecified future, there will be some unspecified negotiation that will exploit this military result to produce a better partition of the stake than we would get without it. And I don't personally think that is responsible policy for a democracy that's killing people in the name of the state and spending tens of billions of dollars in the project. I think we can reasonably demand of our government some articulation of what is the strategy for getting to a negotiated settlement and serious effort, not in limited to, but including staffing out the relevant parts of the government that would be required to actually get a negotiation that could justify the scale of expenditure and the scale of expenditure of human life. The, the one element I would add to the agenda of what's required for seriousness in the negotiation is it's going to require some horse trading on Capitol Hill by an administration who is actually willing to spend political capital rather than just money on this war and on this campaign. As we saw in 2012 when the Obama administration did this kind of semi-deal with the Taliban where in exchange for them giving us uh, the unfortunate Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, their one captive. We were going to release a small number of Taliban detainees from Guantanamo Bay, and that was intended largely as a confidence-building measure to start the negotiating process. When that was announced, Capitol Hill melted down. There was huge opposition. How can you release these terrible terrorists from Guantanamo Bay? The Obama administration got cold feet, withdrew the deal. The Taliban concluded we were... You know, bad faith negotiators, the talks collapsed and went into deep freeze from which they have you know, only very imperfectly recovered. Now, plausible, reasonable people can disagree over whether or not even with a properly staffed negotiating strategy, even with some willingness to build a constituency on Capitol Hill for a compromise deal so another Bergdahl-Taliban deal meltdown doesn't happen whenever compromise negotiating proposals with the Taliban are revealed. Reasonable people can disagree about whether even if you make a serious effort, you can get a deal. I'm on the optimistic end of that spectrum. Mike may be less so. I suspect in Q&A we can turn to what the negotiating space would look like, what you would have to do, who you'd have to talk to, and all of that. It's all important <laughs> and worth discussing. But if you are not somewhere on the reasonably optimistic end of that spectrum with respect to the negotiating prospects, Steady as she goes is not then a viable strategy because it's not going to win the war. All it can do is tee up a settlement. If the settlement isn't coming, we ought not to be doing this. And what we've got at the moment, in my view, is dangerously close to steady as she goes and hope for a miracle. Keep the war on life support. Maintain the stalemate, prevent the Taliban from gaining momentum, and expect that sometime in the future, somehow in a way that we're not going to articulate, we'll get to a settlement that 
lots of people are skeptical can occur. That I don't think is a responsible policy for democracy. I, I think we reasonably should ask more of our leaders in terms of articulating the logic by which our expenditure and our military effort and our advising produces a settlement that's better for us than simply government collapse in Kabul. Hope for a miracle is probably a good segue for what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> so 2001, the Taliban's in control of Afghanistan. Freedom House assesses the country is not free. 2017, after 16 years of significant efforts, Freedom House assesses Afghanistan as not free. Transparency International rates the Afghan government as more corrupt than 96% of all governments in the international system. In addition to being corrupt, the Afghan government and its security force are incompetent. The Taliban currently control or contest approximately 45% of the country, more than at any other time since they were last in power in 2001. And regarding a threat to the United States of America, the Taliban themselves have obviously never conducted a strike in the homeland, and al-Qaeda, which has conducted a strike in our homeland and did enjoy sanctuary in Afghanistan has not conducted an attack since 2009, and that was the unsuccessful botched mission uh, by the underwear bomber. And if you're talking about safe havens, al-Qaeda can currently be found in Pakistan, Somalia, and Yemen. Very few fighters are you going to find in Afghanistan. And so for this reason and some more that I'm going to get into, I'm going to argue that it's long overdue for the withdrawal of U.S. military forces to bring them back home. My two primary arguments for this morning are, one, the intelligence, uh, excuse me, the threat does not warrant our continued presence in Afghanistan. And two, the strategy that we've used for 16 years, which is the world's most exquisite, most capable military force, so like this giant, wonderfully shiny hammer, is marauding Muslim-majority states looking for a terrorist and then schwacking the terrorist and really hoping that all we killed was the terrorist and not somebody else. So to begin, uh, the threat does not justify, is my argument, our presence in Afghanistan. So here's a chart of 50 years of data on exactly how many Americans are murdered each year in the homeland. Question for today is, how many of them are murdered by Islamist-inspired terrorists, and how many of them are murdered by someone else? Obviously, the green bars suggest that it's always someone else who does the murdering in the United States. It's not Islamist-inspired terrorists. In fact, in only one year can you detect the impact of Islamist-inspired terrorists, and that's, of course, 2001. And I want to talk for a moment about the terror attacks on 9-11. Those attacks were unprecedented, had not ever seen it in history prior. We have not seen it since. It's an outlier event. Twice as many human beings perished that day than in any other terror attack ever in history. And it's important to note, in contrast to that, that large-scale terror attacks almost never take place in the West in North America, much less in the United States of America. Our worst terror attack outside of 9-11 is uh, Timothy McVeigh in 1995 when he killed 168 in Oklahoma City. The most, uh, second most severe attack in North America is one most people haven't even heard of, and that's going back 32 years when Sikh extremists uh, blew up an Air India flight originating out of Toronto, Canada, killing 329. Instead, all large-scale major terror attacks take place in failed or war-torn states. 
And it's also important to note that in 2001, our homeland security efforts were much different then than they are today. Please remember that all of the hijackers made it into our country legally using their real identities. All of the pilots received their technical training here. The idea that all of this uh, training was done in Afghanistan, some hua hua stuff was, and maybe they each shot two rounds out of an AK-47. The technical training was done in the United States of America, and it was done in plain sight. One of the hijackers lived with his flight instructors, and I'm not trying to be glib here. Two of the hijackers left the United States on vacation and, no kidding, successfully argued their way back into our country by assuring American INS agents that they were authorized to be here because they were students. Specifically, they argued, we are pilot training students. And that's not a ding on the American system. It's to say that that was a different time. And I'm trying to drive home the point that they operated just as freely, if you will, in the United States of America as they did in any other subsequent uh, safe haven. So if your concern is safe havens, we've eliminated the most important one, and that's the United States of America. And there are terrorists who still seek to harm America. My assumption is there always has been, there always will be. And you can make a definite argument that the terror threat today is more intense in its animus to the United States than arguably previous uh, terror campaigns may have been. But they're limited in what they can do here. And they're limited because of our homeland security efforts, not because of our military operations abroad. And that's what I want to turn to uh, next, is that our military-centric combat power can solve this riddle approach we've been using for 16 years now is clearly not working. The first argument, the main argument that you're all going to have heard is that uh, we need to protect Americans. And the way we're going to do it in a post 9-11 world is we're going to take the fight to the enemy. We're going to kill and capture them overseas today so they do not come into the homeland tomorrow is the argument. You've got more than 30 years of data uh, captured here. The main point is, on average, a fraction, less than one, Islamist-inspired terror attack takes place in the homeland on any given year for three, the past three decades. And they kill only a handful. Every single life lost is tragic. But in comparison to the numbers of each year that we kill, and this is regular Americans murdering each other, it doesn't seem to cause as much concern. So you'll have potentially six or so Americans die from an Islamist-inspired terror attack. And every year, you have more than 15,000 Americans killed by another American. And somehow, one is much more concerning than the other. The second argument we hear is that we must destroy and defeat al-Qaeda. And if you remember early on, it was al-Qaeda and all terror groups of global reach. So at the time, according to our State Department and a cool organization out of Stanford called Mapping Militant Organizations, there were approximately 13 such groups. Al-Qaeda was, of course, the number one. They had approximately 32,000 members, followers, potential fighters. 16 years, we've invaded two countries, we've toppled three regimes, and we've conducted military strikes in seven nations. And the response is now we have 44 of those terror groups that we're facing, to include, obviously, the Islamic State, numbering nearly 110,000 adherents. So if somebody wants to make the argument of how the military strategy is doing well, I would love to hear that in the lunch session. Because it, the logical implication is all of our military efforts have not achieved the main goals that we're looking at. And this is a sub-point to the previous. We've conducted military strikes as part of the war on terror in seven Muslim-majority countries. You're supposed to be able to see three bars here, a bar that represents the average number of attacks in the 14 years prior to 2001, a bar for 2001, and then a bar for the 14 years after 2001. With the exception of Pakistan, you only see the bars afterwards. All of the terror activity that we're experiencing today did not precede but followed U.S. military strikes and the U.S. Uh, 
military strategy to combat the war on terror. All right, so I want to switch to my final point, and this is a linked argument. You'll hear people say that we're in Afghanistan to prevent the Taliban from returning to power. We need to surge forces to arrest the momentum that was spoken of earlier, and that's linked to the idea that if the Taliban returns to power, Afghanistan will again be a safe haven uh, for terrorists. And so I want to make, first of all, I think that argument's dubious on multiple levels, but I just want to make two quick points. Uh, the first here is the Taliban back in 2001 controlled or contested almost the entirety of the country. And they did that with 35,000 security forces. 16 years later, Afghanistan has a 382,000 member security force, and they are barely able to control or contest half of their country. In addition to having more than 10 times the security force that what the Taliban had 16 years ago, they've had us fighting for them, and I can assure you that for many of the years we were doing the fighting, then we were fighting alongside world-class training going on, world-class advising, equipping, billions of U.S. dollars going in to stand up the security force, billions of U.S. dollars going in to try and get the economy going, because that's an assumption underlying some of the grievances that Max spoke of earlier. And then my final point is if you're concerned about, and I'm not trying to be snarky here, if you're concerned about uh, safe havens, Afghanistan's at the back of the line. The current terror safe havens for al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, groups like that, are not in Afghanistan. They're in Syria, Iraq, Nigeria, a total of seven countries before you have to worry about Afghanistan. So if the safe haven argument is a compelling one, there's plenty of other places we should be directing our attention rather than Afghanistan. So in conclusion, you know, my primary argument is the withdrawal of US forces is long overdue. The primary argument that I'm using today is one, the threat to Americans here in the homeland does not warrant our military presence there in Afghanistan. And then the second point is the military strategy that we've emphasized uh, has clearly failed to achieve the objectives. Thank you. So, so what I have managed to do as a moderator is uh, to uh, cut into my own time. Uh, so, uh, but it was because I enjoyed listening to these four presentations. So uh, no, I, I don't feel that badly about it. I do want to leave sufficient time for uh, those of you in the audience to ask a few questions. I just want to pick up on, I am going to exercise my privilege on just one point. I, I want to come back mostly to Steve Biddle's remarks um, because I agree with him that uh, the prospect of a negotiated settlement being acceptable politically here in the United States is vanishingly small. The concessions that the United States made to the Taliban as part of the Bo Bergdahl trade, which, which Steve referred to, um, are so much less than the concessions that we would be parties to in the event of a negotiated political settlement in Afghanistan that left the Taliban uh, at least as uh, partners in some sort of power sharing agreement in the, in the government. So this is a question for the panelists as well as for those of you in the audience and watching online. Will we Americans ever be willing to tolerate something in Afghanistan that does not look like unadulterated victory, which all four of the panelists have said is not a realistic prospect? And if we Americans are not willing to accept anything less than unadulterated victory, then are we not, in fact, merely 
on a steady as she goes, hope for a miracle, and in the meantime, sustain the appearance of not losing. Because we will not actually accept a victory that isn't, that doesn't look like, uh, you know, uh, August of 1945. Um, so that's my observation. And one quick question, going back to Max's anecdote. I think I got this quote right, Max, so you can correct me if I, sir, he doesn't think we're welcome here. Or words to that effect, right? This is being translated, right? Sir, he doesn't think we're welcome here. And so my question to the panelists is, does that matter? How much does it matter? whether or not we're welcome here. Machiavelli said it's better to be feared than loved, I think, if I got my Machiavelli right. Um, we know, for example, that changes in the rules of engagement that have already been approved by President Trump um, are increasing the incidence of civilian casualties inside of Afghanistan. While, again, the, the goal of the US military is to strike the right people, and I, and I respect that, we have, we have weakened and, and, and softened the rules of engagement that increase the likelihood of civilian casualties. If, so how much does it matter how much support we're getting inside of the government and does not a strategy that requires us to use force in a more permissive way than we did under the rules mostly put in place by General McChrystal, um, does that in itself cut against the goal of being able to stay there, as Mike, you say, indefinitely and to be tolerated indefinitely? And so I'll, I'll just throw that question to the four of you very quickly and then I'll open it up to the audience. So you have a particular order in mind? No, no, not really. <laughs> Max can go first because yeah. I'm looking at him first. Yeah, I'll say a couple things about that. Uh, so the issue is American assistance is sometimes considered a panacea of support. So an airstrike is awesome. The idea that somewhere without any sort of danger, something above knows exactly where it needs to shoot and it shoots and then the thing that we wanted to destroy is destroyed. Uh, it's it's deceptive in a lot of ways. Um, the difficulty in being able to discern targets, the difficulty in being able to make sure that the people on the ground have identified the proper target. Um, a lot of this is, those are its own challenges. Um, one of the primary issues I have with that is that Afghans don't have air support. They don't have, there's no Afghan Air Force that's able to provide this air support. So if we're talking about training a organization to be able to survive on its own without continued American support, airstrikes are probably not the solution. Uh, the solution is teaching them how to use their indirect fire assets. The solution is teaching them how to maneuver and fire and fight on the ground in those situations. Um, the solution is not teach them as Afghans who are not going to have this once, American, once the American with the radio leaves. Um, the solution is not to teach them, hey, if you're under fire, hunker down, wait for the airstrike to come, and then go clean up the body parts. That's not how that works. And that's not good, I mean, to, to follow that, that's not good military strategy. It's not good military tactics. Um, and it's unfortunately what we teach. Uh, whenever we're in a bad situation, um, that's what we're instructing the Afghans who are fighting alongside. Hey, don't worry, America's coming. We're going to bring a bomber. And that's, we're not going to be there all the time. Three quick points in response to your question, Chris, about our long-term staying power or the welcome we receive, as I, as I see it anyway. Uh, point number one, overall public opinion in Afghanistan towards the United States has always been much better than in Iraq, 
but that's relative to a pretty low standard. And, uh, and it's deteriorated with time. It was extremely high. Afghans were extremely pro-American in the years right after 9-11 and the overthrow of the Taliban. Those numbers uh, in the years that Steve and I were, I think, most frequently there in sort of the, you know, Petraeus, McChrystal, Allen, Dunford era, the, the numbers were often somewhere around 50%. And now they're probably continuing to decline as people get frustrated with the war. Second point, there are still a number of Afghan uh, officials, reformers, leaders who want us there either because they know they're not yet up to doing the job themselves, they need to build the Air Force or what have you, or uh, because we provide a little bit of an honest broker effect. Even among people who don't like us, they still know we're not taking sides between Pashtun and other groups. We don't have favorites. And that's part of why the Iraqis tolerate us, because they see us as neutral, even if they don't tend to like us. The third point, however, and here I'll be wary of this uh, Afghan support, there are a lot of people who want us there uh, because we're the sugar daddies. We're providing the the influx of resources, and they have learned to feed off that. And of course, that is a fundamental challenge to the mission. And despite my slight hopefulness about Ghani's government improving technical oversight of contracts and things like that, there is still a huge amount of corruption in Afghanistan. So a lot of people want us there for the wrong reasons. You know, just a quick word on each of your two points, On starting on the are we welcome here point. Um, foreign troops are never welcome. They are often tolerated, however, when the population believes that they're bringing something that wouldn't be there otherwise. Maybe that's money. More commonly, it's security. Anbar province in Iraq is a fascinating example. It's relevant to Afghanistan as well. Uh, when we were present in Anbar, but in troop numbers too small to actually stabilize the country, we were perceived as causing the violence and we were lethally unwelcome. When violence then declined, and the perception in Anbar was that the American surge had something to do with this, the American presence then was tolerated. I was able to walk through Fallujah without body armor, with an American patrol, and you know, people weren't throwing rose petals in our path. We weren't gonna win any popularity contest, but our presence was tolerated because it was perceived that we, our presence was the price of an end to the violence and people wanted the violence over. The worst case to be in is when you're there in numbers large enough to be irritating, but small enough, too small to solve the problem. And unfortunately, that's kind of where we have been in Afghanistan a great deal of the time. I, I, I'm fond of quoting Clausewitz, and I've only done it once so far today, so we'll do it at least another time. Clausewitz once said, um, no one crossing a wide chasm would begin by jumping halfway. Right? And the problem with these sort of halfway presences is that they're enough to create antibodies. They're not enough to provide anything that the population thinks is worth that cost. That has not always been true. Our presence in Germany, our presence in South Korea, we've been present in other places where the response has been very different, in part because people thought we were defending them from the Soviet Union or from North Korea, and they valued something in exchange for the indignity of the basing of foreign troops on your soil. Now, with respect to, would Americans ever be willing politically to tolerate a deal with the Taliban? Uh, obviously, I think in principle the answer could be yes, but isn't necessarily, and I, I cited the Bo Bergdahl case for a reason in that context. The, the case for arguing that it might be possible with a proper amount of political investment in engineering would be, first of all, it has always been striking to me, at least in the last 10 years, how close to completely invisible the war in Afghanistan has been in American domestic politics. People periodically make claims about the, the, the American public doesn't want 
the, the presence in Afghanistan. When polled, the American public typically prioritizes Afghanistan 12th out of 10 in <laughs> things that they want their elected official working on. To a remarkable degree in American domestic politics, and especially to a remarkable degree in the history of democracies waging wars, Afghanistan is largely a vote of con conscience for practically every elected official in America. You would need an electron microscope to detect the effect of the Afghan issue on any election outcome in any congressional district in America, I suspect. And given that its, that it's political salience is so low, I think it's susceptible to some degree of orthodox political engineering to reduce the downside political risk of a settlement by pointing out to key committee chairmen by pointing out to people in your own party, this president theoretically is a Republican. The opposition to the Bergdahl deal was overwhelmingly Republican. Right. It's not impossible to imagine that a president who cared enough about the outcome to spend money and risk lives would be willing to make the political effort to persuade Republicans on Capitol Hill that the alternative to this deal is outright failure. And I think you could imagine someone willing to invest that kind of capital, persuading enough key voices from his own party on Capitol Hill to make a deal sustainable. But it, but it will not happen on autopilot. It, it won't happen if you spring a deal on people that involves you know, concessions to the hated Taliban at the last minute and provide opportunities for lots of people who have become quite irritated at you for various reasons to take advantage of the, the occasion, it requires some degree of seriousness. No. Eric has uh, yielded back the balance of his time. Okay, um, so we do have a few minutes here. Uh, a few ground rules which should sound familiar to you. Um, here at the Cato Institute, we uh, abide by the Jeopardy rule. That means uh, questions are in the form of a question. No speeches, please. Please wait for the microphone for the benefit of those watching online and on C-SPAN. And please identify yourself and your affiliation if you have one. I'm going to group the questions together in two. So uh, right here and then right there. Go ahead, sir, and then you, sir. <coughs> Lou Gagliano, uh, independent consultant. My question is the following. I agree with the analysis about the negotiation, but I haven't heard anyone speak about the other parties who have to come to this table, which is the Afghan government and a historically fractionated tribal structure which has an influence. So I, I, I agree that longer term, or, or intermediate, or maybe even shorter term, that's the right strategy. But how you, do you convince these two other groups that it is in their best interest to yield? Right here, sir. Mr. Guppner, you talked about it isn't worth the struggle. Do you imagine that you would need to negotiate your way out or just get out? The second comment, I worked 15 years up in the Senate, and I noticed recently Senator Kane and uh, the senator from uh, Rand Paul, bipartisan, got 39 votes on a new resolution to authorize military force because people are concerned about the United States being involved in all these foreign conflicts. The politics of this issue is changing. Uh, I think that first question is mostly to you, Steve, and then Eric. Go ahead. 
Okay. Well, as far as getting the Afghan government involved, one of the reasons why I said this, this settlement isn't coming in six months or a year or two is because any negotiation theorist would look at this and say this is going to be an unusually complicated negotiation because there's so many parties involved and the Afghan government is not a monolithic you know, con uh, participant. The Tajik and Uzbek communities in the north of the country in particular are very nervous about what will be negotiated away in this kind of settlement and have historically been quite opposed to negotiating. The uh, southern Pashtuns in particular, and to some extent the eastern Pashtuns, have been much more supportive. And so there's a, the, an internal domestic horse trading process that's going to have to occur within the Afghan government before they can formulate a consistent negotiating stance. Now, part of this internal negotiating process, which inevitably is going to be mostly Afghan, we'll, we'll try and influence it at the margin and, and shape it, of course, but, but at the end of the day, you know, this, this is going to be a horse trading process you know, largely within the Afghan side of the, the talks. Uh, part of this will be, I suspect, tacitly identifying red lines that the government will not go below in the compromises they're willing to make. So things like girls' education, for instance, which are, you know, is much more uh, favored in the north of the country than in the south, might very well constitute a red line. Uh, things like uh, provincial governorship control uh, is probably prob probably will be and probably should be a red line that the Afghan government should not be willing to negotiate a Taliban governorship in uh, Kandahar or Helmand provinces, for example. So part of the process presumably is quietly internal to the Afghan side, the Afghan president, whoever it is at that time, making it clear to political leaders, especially in the north, but to some extent in the west, that there are red lines that they are not going to, to go below, and your interests Tajiks, Uzbeks, Bazaars will be respected. Part of this also, however, is necessarily going to be horse trading. The United States is probably going to have to sweeten these kinds of deals. And we have at our disposal for a great deal less than we are now spending for our advisory presence a fair amount of degrees of freedom for deal sweetening. Mike is the expert on budgeting, so I, I will <laughs> tread into this territory only with fear and, and uh, trembling. But a, a common, you know, Kentucky windage rule of thumb for the cost of keeping an American soldier in a combat zone in a place like Afghanistan a year is about a million dollars. So if, if we're talking about an advisor presence in the order of 24,000, that's about 24 billion a year right there. You reduce that by 10,000 and you make available a lot of economic aid that can be used to create incentives for internal parties within Afghanistan to, to be willing to cooperate with a compromise deal. But, but note that this is a very complicated political engineering process, which is one of the several reasons why I find it so frustrating that you know, we, we basically uh, depopulated a fair part of the apparatus of the U.S. government that would normally be expected to do the, the political intelligence work and the negotiating work and the management of this kind of a complicated process because it's very complicated. Uh, Eric, can you speak to the second question? Eric, go. In terms of um, negotiate or just withdrawal absent a negotiation, I think either way from an American perspective is fine. Um, a central argument that we would make is that the U.S. military presence, as noble as it is, is inadvertently causing some of the problems. 
So by removing U.S. military forces, we're taking a positive action to lower the animus, hatred, grievance against the United States. Um, if you go back to Al-Qaeda, you know, we're not their primary enemy. They, their primary enemy was local. It's about political power at the local level, in Al-Qaeda's case, probably the Middle East. And the only reason they came and struck us, their argument was, is if we don't strike the far enemy, we'll never be able to supplant our near enemy, which is really our overall goal. So fundamentally, my argument is the withdrawal of forces is a positive step for the United States to decrease the amount of terror activity or interest directed towards us. Um, so whether it's concurrent with negotiation or absent negotiation from an American perspective, I don't think it matters. And, and to go back to a previous point, I definitely agree this is a generational struggle. I think we just misidentify whose generation the struggle is for. It's not a United States struggle. This is all about grievance, political power, frustration, goal achievement in the Middle East or Central Asia. It has very little. None of these groups are fundamentally about coming to the United States. That's not any of their mission statements to the best of my knowledge. They only do it as a target of opportunity to get some other local uh, goal that they're trying to achieve. Very, very quickly, lightning round. Should we have a new, should we have a vote on a new authorization to use military force? Eric? Yes. Steve? Yes, as good government. Mike? Yes, but uh, I don't want to see the existing one lost if we fail to get a new one. Back. I abstain from that one. I abstain from that one. Understood. <laughs> All right, two more questions. I saw a hand right back there and then back there. Go ahead, right there and behind, right behind the line there. Yes, sir. Go ahead, Sahar, you first. Um, hi, my name is Sahar Khan. I'm a visiting fellow here at Cato. Um, I have a couple of questions. One um, is for Professor O'Hanlon. Um, you discussed in your remarks how Afghanistan could serve as a U.S. strategic ally. I wonder how, in your assessment, the Afghanis feel about this. Is this something that they want? Is this something that they um, are working towards? Or is this the price that they sort of have to pay for security in the long run? Um, and this is also for the whole panel. Um, can you discuss the Afghani economy and its reliance on the opium trade? Um, the UN Office of Drug and Crime reported a 43% increase last year. And I wonder what kind of effect that would have on any kind of negotiation or um, settlement with the Taliban. Right there, sir. Go ahead. And this will be our last question, unfortunately. Go ahead, sir. My name is Charles Oliver. I'm with USAID. I'm a foreign service officer. I spent almost six years in Afghanistan, um, took a year off at NDU to recuperate. Um, I, um, so I, I saw quite a bit between 2009 and 2015, and we, I, was the, I was the SCR in Kandahar when we closed down our civilian platform. Um, during the midst of all of this, I saw qu obviously quite a bit, and, and there was one kind of glorious moment in the middle where we actually had a joint civ mill strategy in RCEs. So I was heading a task force down there. So I'm kind of wondering where the 3D is in all of this thinking, where we have this military strategy sort of being cooked up. I just came from another meeting where they were talking about the national security strategies, not quite there yet. And is that even in your calculus? Um, we have people that are sitting in Kabul uh, now for a year and do not even see beyond the T walls of the embassy. Max, do you want to take either of those? Yeah, so I'll discuss a little bit. So in terms of uh, the opium uh, economy that has developed in Afghanistan, frankly, uh, Zabul, uh, my first little experience in Afghanistan, uh, they spent a significant amount of time um, building or having grapes. And grapes used to be famous. So they have grapes, and I think it was, uh, uh, it was pears? Was it pears? Pears? Pears. They, they had another fruit. It grew on a tree. Basically, it took... <laughs> 
So it took, <laughs> but the important part of that is in terms of grapes, you need to make sure that nobody destroys your vineyard during the year that you're growing grapes. Uh, for the, the trees, uh, or fruit that came off the trees, apricots, that was the one. Uh, so apricots, you can sell it for as much as opium uh, in, a, in a lot of those, thing, those, uh, those areas. However, it took five or six years before it would actually give fruit. So if you're in Afghanistan and you're making an investment with an expected return in six years, you're a fool. Because that was not, I mean, there, there was no reason for them to believe that in six years they were able to do it. O opium, they could, I think it was two harvests a year. That's a lot of money. Um, and they had a willing, a willing per or buyer. So uh, I can say a little bit of experience. In 2011, down in Kandahar, being there, uh, we had American bases in the middle of just vast fields of marijuana, for instance. And we were eradicating drugs, but it didn't solve the problem. I mean, there, there, was, no, uh, there was no alternative to that. Um, and so we spent a little bit of time in 2010 trying to develop with the USDA, hey, this is how you, this is how you make your yields of other crops a little bit more productive. But uh, until the U.S. or until the Afghan government has a secure hold on the country and they can say, hey, this is illegal and therefore your next best alternative is this other, um, this other crop, they're probably not going to change because in the end, these are families that have existed. They don't want the government to be involved in their life. They've existed for a long time providing for their own families. They don't have anybody to fall back on. And if opium is how they get to that, they're probably going to continue growing opium until, uh, until something tells them they can't. Anyone else want to take either of those other two questions? Yeah, very, very quickly, since one was posed to me directly, I'll say that I, I think we don't know for sure what the Afghan political system would say about a long-term security partnership. I'm not proposing a formal treaty, but I am thinking about a long-term partnership. I think it would be good to try to put it to the test politically within Afghanistan. So I think some kind of a negotiation that produced the outlines of a treaty upon which then politicians in Afghanistan could debate and campaign ultimately would be the best way to test your question. My sense is overall Afghanis Afghans would welcome a security partnership with the United States because most feel that they are too weak and they need help. And that, to, by the way, very quickly on the points you raised about a need for a broader strategy, sir, and I admire your service. Six years is a long time in Afghanistan. Um, you're, you're right. We haven't done full justice to it today, especially someone like me who's defending the overall presence. I will mention that we have to keep fighting corruption and supporting the Afghan government. I, I have talked about that earlier today. We have to think a lot about the upcoming elections. The independent oversight boards are not yet strong enough to do a better job than they did in 2014. So I'm very worried about that. The Pakistan dimension is part of a broader strategy. And then finally, um, the idea of getting reformers to come back home, which is part of my perceived need to reverse the sense of momentum and perception in the security trends. I want to see those young Afghan reformers come home to do uh, what you're alluding to with the broader strategy. So those are just the beginnings of doing justice to your question. Either? No? Uh, well, I'm afraid we are out of time. I want to thank uh, the panelists for their comments. Uh, thank all of you for attending and for watching. Um, for those of you here with us today, uh, please join us uh, on the second floor in the George M. Yeager Conference Center uh, for lunch and continued discussion. And with that, thank you all very much for attending. Mm.